As I was walking up the hill this evening, I was hearing the frogs and the crickets and seeing the clouds in the sky. And there's a lot of kind of happiness and contentment in that. I think Greg said the other day, it just seems like it would be better to just let the frogs give the Dharma talk. I feel that way this evening. (laughs) And yet the topic this evening is dependent origination. (laughs) So buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. This teaching is a very fundamental teaching that basically describes, in which the Buddha describes, the teaching describes essentially how suffering comes to be. A very detailed description of the processes at work in our mind which lead to suffering. So it's a really useful teaching. To me, it's been so supportive to have this process just laid out that helps the mind to see things it might not notice or might not see or might not recognize. I'm in awe of the Buddha's mind that he could articulate these things so clearly. And we are the recipients of this, of his understanding and his ability to communicate his understanding. And so the the teaching describes, it's essentially a description of how suffering comes to be. In uh, the time of the Buddha, Ananda really appreciated this teaching. It said he went to the Buddha and said, It's wonderful, it's marvelous how profound this dependent origination is and how profound it appears. And yet to me it appears as clear as clear. And the Buddha, understanding and knowing that Ananda was not fully awakened, um, said, responded, do not say that Ananda, do not say that. I think responding to the it's as clear as clear part of what Ananda said. This dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this teaching, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, unable to pass beyond states of woe, continuing to suffer. And so, to me, what the Buddha is pointing to here with Ananda is that there may be an understanding at some level of the, the content of dependent origination, of the, the teaching itself. And, and for me, this is supportive to have a sense of the, uh, the framework that it lays out to help us understand how suffering comes to be. And yet, the intellectual understanding is different 
than the penetrative understanding, or essentially my sense is of seeing this process at work in direct experience. The intellectual understanding may support us in being curious about experience. It's the seeing of it happening that frees the mind. And so it's, um, it's a teaching that's simple at heart in that it basically points to the conditioned nature of experience. The simple version of this teaching is when this is, that is. When this comes to be, that comes to be. When this isn't, that isn't. When this ceases, that ceases. And yet this... Um, this explanation of how suffering arises kind of dives in and points how that process of conditioning brings, creates the conditions for suffering to arise. And so it's a, it, it describes, the teaching describes a pretty complex process in our minds that's pretty deeply, uh, often deeply under the surface where it's, it's not easy to see it at work. And yet hearing this teaching for me has been so helpful in my own practice. And so I offer this this evening in the hopes that some of it might be useful for your practice. I don't think of the teaching of dependent origination itself as a practice, Dependent origination describes the, the process by which suffering comes to be. And, and yet because it describes that, it may help us to understand how we can practice to see this process unfolding. So this, a couple of pieces about this, the overarching understanding of basically this teaching describing the conditions that create suffering. A description of how, some, uh, how suffering comes to be as a human pattern. He's describing something that applies to all of us. That to me is, is uh, inspiring that, and, and helpful to recognize, oh, this pattern, the specifics of our suffering may seem very individual, but the pattern behind it, we share that pattern. And so it's describing the human condition. It's not personal. It's not, it help, for me it helps me to, to point to the impersonal nature of the arising of suffering. That is just something that humans do when it's, it's the, the process that this being engages in when it doesn't understand suffering. It doesn't understand the cause of suffering. It doesn't understand there's a possibility for suffering to release. It doesn't understand that there's a way that suffering can release. And so that's one piece that 
this teaching can help us to kind of loosen the way we take our suffering personally because we can see it's just following conditions. It's following habits and patterns that are common to all of us as human beings. And the other piece of it is that it points to the conditioned nature of suffering. There are 12 links in this teaching, this chain of dependent origination, 12 steps in this process by which suffering comes to be. And this chain basically describes the conditioning uh, for suffering to arise. And again, this is an important part that we recognize it's describing conditions for suffering. And because it's describing conditions, it means that conditions can be changed. It's not, we are not locked in to this process. We can. So the chain describes conditions that create the arising of suffering, different conditions will lead us in a different direction. And the main conditions that lead us in a different direction are hearing the Dharma and practicing in accordance with the Dharma, practicing with right view, right understanding, practicing the Eightfold Path, practicing mindfulness and wisdom. This changes the conditions and can take our experience, it changes the conditions entirely, kind of breaks, can break into that cycle which will habitually lead us to suffering and lead us to freedom instead. So the links, just to start, the links are ignorance. Ignorance conditions mental formation. Mental formations condition consciousness. Consciousness conditions our mind and body processes Our mind and body processes condition the six sense spaces. The six sense spaces condition contact, contact with a sense store. Contact conditions feeling. Feeling tends to condition craving. Craving conditions clinging. Clinging conditions becoming. Becoming conditions birth. And birth conditions old age and death. And as the Buddha says often at the end of this chain, and thus the entire mass of suffering is created. So this chain, and I'll go through each of these links of necessity fairly briefly. But there's a couple of uh, pieces again about the bigger picture here. And often this chain of 
the creation of suffering beginning with ignorance leading through our mind and body and feeling and craving and um, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, death. Often it's understood as a cycle where suffering at the end of the cycle basically conditions further ignorance. And so we tend to stay caught in this cycle unless there's something new that happens. And Greg pointed the other night to something new that can happen at the point of the contact of suffering. That if we hear the Dharma and engage with the Dharma, have some faith that arises in contact with that suffering, the, the condition of faith, of, of faith arises in dependence of suffering. When we hear the Dharma, when we believe or when we can connect with that understanding and, and, and kind of have the inspiration to engage with it, it takes us in a completely different direction. And yet, much of the time we are, we, we forget that and we we have suffering and we feel like, oh, suffering, this is, I'm, I'm struggling with this and what am I doing wrong and how can I fix this? And, and the whole process in which we engage when we meet suffering often just takes us right back to ignorance. And so the process just kind of reinforces itself. For this teaching this evening, I'm going to uh, not start in the traditional place. The teaching starts with ignorance. Ignorance leads to mental formations, leads to consciousness, leads to mind and body. All of those in my own um, experience were, were kind of the, the last ones to really fall into place in terms of being able to understand them. And so I'm gonna start where it's a little easier to understand this cycle. I'm going to start with the fact that we've got a body and a mind. We're conscious and there's a body and mind here. And because of this body and mind, we and in this body and mind, we have these six sense spaces. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, contact with the skin, and our minds. And so these are our six sense spaces and because we have these six sense spaces and we're conscious, we experience contact with these sense spaces. We experience seeing. There's sights. Hit sights contact the eyes. Sounds contact the ears. Smells contact the nose. Thoughts, moods, mind states contact the mind door. So the the, 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 the sixth sense being the, the mind door. And so the, the, the arising of sense experience includes the entire range of our sense experience, not just our physical senses. And so we have these six sense spaces and because of that we experience contact with the world. Each of those contacts, every single contact, Every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every touch, every arising in the mind has a feeling tone associated with it. And this teaching 
the, the, the aspect of our experience, the Vedana that Amana talked about the other night. Every sense contact has a feeling tone. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. These um, feeling tones arise based on conditions. They're not inherent in the experience. They, they are conditioned based on many things. They're based on our, our own um, bodies, our own experience from the past, our ideas. A whole host of things will condition the feeling tone. A simple example of this is um, perhaps, perhaps some of you um, like the taste of milk, especially following a cookie. So the, the condition of drinking milk after having eaten a cookie, there's pleasant feeling tone there. And now maybe just imagine having eaten a pickle and then having a drink of milk. Even the idea of it to me is unpleasant. So that, you know, that, so the contact, the feeling is not in the milk. There are conditions that in this body, choices that have been made that will, the experience of that contact of the taste on the tongue will be different depending on the conditions. And feeling tone too is simply feeling tone. It's not, it's, not, it's not skillful or unskillful. It's just, it's just feeling. In fact, it is said that uh, a fully enlightened being, an arhant, will experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There's one teaching where it, it says, an ordinary person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And so does an arhant. What's the difference between them? I'll get to that later. So based on feeling tone, feeling tone arises, and based on feeling tone, there's a habitual tendency, a habit of mind that's very human, again, not personal to to any one of us individually, but just almost kind of built into being a human being, a human, that we tend to, when something is pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want to move towards it. When something's unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to push it away. We want it, we don't want that. You know, this may be built somewhat into our biology. Even the single-celled creatures have this tendency to move towards things that will nourish their life and away from noxious chemicals move towards what could be called pleasant, away from unpleasant for that single-celled creature. And yet in our system, um, this movement towards pleasant and away from unpleasant is not hardwired in us as human beings, as it may be in some other beings. We we have this capacity to look at our experience and notice, make choices. There's an agency in our being that, we can, that there can be choices made about how we engage with the world. 
And so while there's a tendency to move immediately towards the pleasant and, and away from the unpleasant, there can be different choices made at times. But, but generally, when we're not consciously uh, aware of things being pleasant, we, we kind of automatically move towards them. This is the aspect of craving, this next link in the chain. It's like we're this simple machine that wants to maximize pleasant and minimize unpleasant. And again, habitually, we act out of that wanting. And what I'd say too is that our minds are a little bit short-sighted in that... um, you know, we act out of wanting to move towards pleasant and away from unpleasant, kind of at a, a range or at a, a, the, a sense of um, what's going to give me the next quick hit of something pleasant or unpleasant. You know, get, get rid of something unpleasant. And we, we might try to be constructing our lives to have these, you know, threads of getting pleasant and getting rid, of, getting rid of unpleasant, and we might think that's as good as it gets. If I can construct my life to get what I want and get rid of what I don't want, that's as good as it would get. And yet, as we begin to uh, explore our minds and begin to recognize that that process, actually it just keeps us hooked to doing that, believing, thinking that that's what's going to do it for me and get what I want, I'll be happy. This whole process is based in that kind of belief that's embedded in wanting. Wanting itself has this view, this idea, this delusion embedded in it that if I get that thing, I'll be happy. Aversion, likewise, has kind of embedded in it this delusion that if I get rid of that thing, I'll be happy. And yet, what we see as we drop more deeply is that that process, the wanting itself, has a kind of a suffering in it already. It already has a a tension and a tightness. And that the, the movement towards a different relationship with pleasant, the movement towards a different relationship with pleasant and unpleasant, can create an understanding that there's a different kind of happiness that's possible. This can be very interesting to explore in your experience when you notice wanting happening. Maybe explore a simple wanting. Explore a wanting around wanting to get seconds or go back for a second bit of dessert or special fruit that's offered. Maybe just notice that. Notice the wanting. Feel into the wanting Wanting, when we're caught by it, doesn't reveal to us, doesn't point out to us how painful wanting itself is. 
wanting itself actually is pretty unpleasant. It kind of, it, it's already got this feeling that something's off or something's wrong in it. So a feeling of lack. As soon as there's wanting that springs up, there's a feeling of lack. And wanting, having this view that getting that thing is what's going to make me happy, <laughs> caught by that view, it's got, that's its only option towards happiness, is to get that thing. Wanting, when we're caught by wanting, wanting is not going to tell us that if you hang out, wanting will go away and there will be no problem. And so this release from wanting, this is one of the ways we can explore this dependent origination, is looking at these links, looking at them, watching them, exploring them. Look at this experience of wanting. If you watch it, see it go away at some point. I had an experience on one retreat where I was watching a, a repeated pattern of wanting it was coming up regularly, a similar kind of pattern around wanting to look at people. And I watched it over and over again. And at some point, I saw the wanting let go. Just by watching it over and over again. Actually, it let go the first time when, again, seeing through dependent origination, essentially, seeing that when the conditions leading to the wanting disappeared, which were seeing somebody, somebody was in my field of vision, that was a condition for wanting to look at them. When the person disappeared into the building, the condition for wanting to look at them disappeared. And the wanting disappeared. I never looked at them, but just saw that condition vanish. And the wanting vanished. And the release from that wanting was being like, felt like being released from a vice grip. The release, the ease that came with that were way more, uh, way more in line with well-being than looking at a person to see who they were. Way more deeply way more deep happiness, deep ease and peace from watching the wanting let go than from following through on the wanting. And so wanting tends to habitually lead to following through on that wanting, to, to look, to grasp, to fix, to change. We, we try to hold on to or cling to something that we want. We, 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 we try to do something to get rid of something. And so the, the, the clinging is, the wanting I'd say is more the movement towards something pleasant, the movement away from something unpleasant. And the clinging is where we, we, we land on it. We either, we either hold on to it to try to, to keep it or in the case of aversion, as in my own experience, I noticed many times being stuck to it, trying to push it away. Essentially clinging to it, trying to get rid of it. The mind clinging to it. 
once something is clung to, once there is that clinging, then essentially our, um, our system, our, once there's this kind of sense of, oh, got this thing, and this thing is what's going to make me happy, it's like our system kind of rallies towards, you know, what are the things that I can do to make sure I keep this thing? Or what are the things I can do to make sure I can keep controlling the situation so that I don't have the unpleasant happening? Tanasaro Bhikkhu points to this one as, this is becoming. He says, becoming is the intentions and actions that rally in the service of clinging. And so... We've clung to something and it's like whole like views and ideas and intentions kind of come into play to say, oh, I got this thing. Okay, better make sure I keep it. How do I do that? How do I make sure that I keep this thing? How do, make sh- do I make sure I'm, I'm not in contact with that unpleasant thing? So this is becoming this movement towards It's like we know where we're headed. We know what we want to do. We like this feeling, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasant feeling, this becoming. It's, it's this sense that we know where we're going. We know what's going to make us happy. We've got our plan in mind, and we're headed there. That's becoming. And from becoming follows birth into some kind of identity. Becoming. Things may feel like they become mine, ownership happens, or I feel somehow like I am, I am the one who does things right. And suffering inevitably follows because this sense of self, the sense of ownership because of the impermanent nature, unreliable nature of experience, there's no way to maintain that. And things will fall apart. In that falling apart, there's the sense, sometimes it's a sense of failure, sometimes it's a sense of loss, There can be grief, fear, confusion, anxiety, a whole host of relationships here to the recognition that things fall apart. And here, so this is suffering, and it will lead back to ignorance as we, be, as we may believe, I did something wrong that things fell apart. As opposed to recognizing this is the nature of things to fall apart. This is the way it is. That might lead in the direction of truth. That leads in the direction of potentially faith and engagement to recognize, oh, things fall fall apart. This is truth. It's not my fault that things fall apart. This is the way it is. And yet we don't often (coughs) recognize that. 
So an example. of this part of the process from my practice. One, one of my first long retreats, I am um, hearing in the Dharma Hall about certain states of experiences that can happen in meditation. So there's the contact, the hearing, and then from that there's this idea that's born in the mind of what that state might be. The description of these states, some of them, sounded pretty pleasant. And so the idea led to this idea that, oh, that would be really nice to have that, and led to that craving, wanting to experience the experiences that the teachers were talking about. There was a clinging in there and that I felt like I needed to have these experiences. My happiness depended on having these experiences. And the becoming was the, serve, the, the intentions to serve that purpose of trying to have that experience was a lot of effort put towards having those experiences. So that was the becoming And um, as I wasn't having those experiences, the birth multiple times was a feeling of uh, not succeeding, the birth of being the one who can't do this, feeling of being a failure. I'm not doing the practice right. Something must be wrong. I've not got the right teaching. I've not got the right teacher. If I had the right teacher, I'd get this right. All of this suffering. The, the, the birth itself was suffering. The birth itself was painful. The sense that I was doing something wrong. So this happened a lot. This kind of sense of I wasn't doing it right. I'm not getting these experiences. What am I doing wrong? How can I, how can I work harder? At some point I began looking at the suffering of that. I began being curious about it. And what I noticed actually was that I saw at some point that the, this pattern of the suffering was, was born based on contact with an idea. And it wasn't the idea that I thought it was, actually. Actually, I hadn't really clearly seen that there was this contact with this idea of, of a, you know, a state. I knew that I was trying to get to these states, but I hadn't really clearly seen that, that contact and that feeling of, and that pull towards towards doing that. But at some point I saw a thought arise in my mind and that thought was in an interview telling my teacher that I'd had one of those experiences. (laughs) And we were laughing and just so happy and it just was so great that this teacher saw that I was such a great yogi and I was, this was a really pleasant thought. And I also saw it was really ludicrous that what I really wanted was not the state, but to tell somebody I'd had the state. I had no idea what the state was because I hadn't experienced it. But that didn't mean I didn't want to be able to tell somebody I'd had it. When I saw that, when when that was seen, when that contact was seen, 
and the just the how silly it was that pattern of suffering fell apart. So that's a flavor of dependent origination and yet there's a a set of the links that we've not touched on yet and those are the first ones. So we've, we've come from body and mind you know, we've come from the, the six sense bases through to suffering, how that suffering basically is created based on the feeling leading to craving. Basically when the feeling is not really clearly seen, tendency will be to lead to craving and that that leads us on to suffering. And then the suffering reconditions or, or conditions ignorance. As I mentioned earlier, that, that not understanding suffering, not seeing or not not understanding that suffering is created by conditions and what those conditions are, it will just tend to perpetuate the cycle. So the basic condition for suffering to lead to ignorance is that suffering is not understood. The first noble truth, there is suffering and suffering should be understood. That actually is enough for a whole lifetime of practice. Suffering should be understood. You should understand how it's created. Suffering arises in dependence on craving. So ignorance basically thinks that having what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, will lead to happiness. This ignorance is the ignorance that's embedded in wanting and aversion. So when wanting arises, when aversion arises, ignorance is arising with it. So this first link of the chain really is kind of the linchpin of the whole chain. Because when ignorance is arising, the belief in wanting, so when ignorance is arising, wanting believes that getting what I want will bring me happiness. Having the pleasant will bring me happiness. And so when there is ignorance in the mind and feeling of pleasant arises, craving will follow. And so the, the work really is to understand this ignorance, this, these beliefs that I need certain things to make me happy. I need to get rid of certain things to make me happy. So with ignorance as condition, 
mental formations come to be. So again, not understanding suffering, that lack of understanding is not, the ignorance is not simply uh, a passive kind of experience. It's, it's a very active process in our minds, this ignorance. When there is ignorance in our minds, it shapes, it, it, it points us towards choosing certain ways to act, engaging in things based on our conditioned habits and patterns. We choose things, we decide things based on this misunderstanding about where happiness might come from. Not understanding that wanting itself, aversion itself, is suffering. Not understanding the release, a a deeper kind of happiness that's possible. So with ignorance, we're, we're probably going to take the most obvious move to get the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant. And we are reinforcing our habits and patterns. So mental formations essentially are these habits and patterns that kind of keep this cycle going. Ignorance is this, this lack of understanding and that creates or leads to these choices based on that lack of understanding. Choices to engage in the world in a certain way. We think we're trying to act to alleviate our suffering because we don't understand that we're actually reinforcing the very things, the very patterns, the very habits that keep us locked in to this cycle. So views, ideas, opinions are also mental formations. And these, um, so these mental formations that come about based on ignorance, you know, they're not just coming about based on our own minds. You know, we are embedded in a collective. We are embedded in relationships with people. We, are, we learn things from our families. We learn things from friends on the playground. We're embedded in our culture. And a lot of the, what, what comes in as mental formations, a lot of what feeds our views comes from our own personal conditioning, but also from our culture. And so our culture also has, it's like, it's like our culture has this collective ignorance that creates collective mental formations. And by collective mental formations, I mean, I mean mental formations that we teach each other, beliefs, ideas, views that we teach each other, and that because so many people around us might share those views, beliefs, and ideas, we don't see them as beliefs or views. We just take them to be truth. And so this is ignorance. Taking a view to be truth is a fundamental kind of ignorance. Not seeing a view as a perspective. 
And yet we are, because of the way our, our, our cultures work, because we tend to be surrounded by people who view things the same way we do, it's reinforced. These views get reinforced. And we, it's hard to see them sometimes. It's hard to see them as views. And so again, the, the ignorance of the culture of, our, of, a, of what, we're, what, what we're taught, the mental formations, those reinforce themselves. Example of this are mental formations related to the concept of race. Views, ideas, beliefs around something that is not the concept of race from what I understand with um, looking at our DNA, there is no no anything in our genetics that has anything to do with race, what we call race, basically meaning color of skin. We, there's nothing. It's a concept. It's purely a, a construct. It's a construct of our culture that we have this concept of race. And yet there are many, many mental formations, views, ideas, beliefs around this concept. And a concept, an idea in the mind, glommed on with all these views and ideas and opinions, boy, does this create suffering in the world. These things are no more than arisings in the mind, and yet they have a deep impact on the world. So much suffering in our world comes from this kind of ignorance and this kind of collective mental formation and not seeing it. Not seeing it is a huge uh, way that the suffering of racism, the suffering of so many kinds of um, discrimination, oppression, privilege come from this kind of... of, uh, of, of collective formation. We have the possibility through our practice to recognize and see through these deeply conditioned, not only internally, personally conditioned, but culturally conditioned patterns that lead to suffering not only suffering in our being, but in our, in, our, in our society. So these mental formations, mental formations with mental formations as condition, not only our, um, our decisions, our actions personally, but also these views, ideas, beliefs that come, come from the broader culture with mental formations as condition, that shapes our consciousness. This is the next link. So views, habits, patterns, choices, ideas, condition what consciousness receives. What we end up experiencing, what we know, what we recognize, 
is filtered through these views and ideas. We don't, one, one quote from, I think it's Anais Nin had, has this, this, uh, this quote, uh, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And that is, that is very true, that those views, ideas, beliefs shape what we actually meet. So for example, if we have a habitual pattern of responding with anger, then that habitual pattern might um, predispose us to kind of look for things, to have things come into consciousness, to take things in that will make us angry. As an aversive person, as a one with an aversive tendency, my mind has that kind of tendency. I began to, to notice at one point, at one point my teacher said, well, just let your attention roam through your body. Just see what it lands on. You know, what's the first thing? What comes into your consciousness, essentially? What, what, just don't choose, just see. What does it land on? And I did that for a few minutes. And he's, he used the word choiceless, I think, in there. You know, just don't choose, you know, let it be choiceless. And when, when I had done it for a few minutes, I said, well, I wasn't choosing, but it sure couldn't have been completely choiceless because every single thing my attention landed on was unpleasant. So it was clear that the, what I began to understand over the, the course of my practice is that tendency towards aversion predisposed me to bring, to, 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 it's like the mind was a, a search beacon for unpleasant. It's like, if I find the unpleasant things and get rid of them, that'll be okay. So it's like searching for the unpleasant in order to get rid of it. This is this conditioning power. Mental formations condition what we take in, what we are experience in consciousness. And then consciousness conditions, shapes our mental and physical experience. So how our consciousness is, perhaps predisposed towards anger. If consciousness is predisposed towards anger and anger is arising, that shapes our our body, our face may become kind of contracted or distorted with anger, an expression of anger. We may feel pressure and heat in our body, so it has an effect on our body when consciousness is colored with one of these mental formations. So this is mental formation coloring consciousness. And then that mental formation coloring consciousness affecting other mind and body processes. It affects our body. It affects how we feel things, tends to make things unpleasant. It affects how we perceive things, recognize things. And it tends to encourage more anger. And so now in this chain of dependent origination, we're back to where we started with, we have a, a body and mind, and there are things arising in body and mind, and there's contact. But we see now that this isn't like we are just, our eyes are cameras and our ears are microphones or, or, or receivers picking up, picking up sound. They are already, our, our sense doors are already 
filtered, conditioned by ignorance, views, opinions. We don't simply receive things kind of like a a blank slate. We are receiving what we have been conditioned to receive. Our filters, our perspectives tend to reinforce our own, our perspectives. And again, so the cycle reinforces itself. And so how, what's the possibility of not being caught by this process? If we look at this as, it's a chain of conditions it's describing how suffering is created, then perhaps if the conditions are changed, something else can happen. And as I said earlier, the main condition that supports a different thing to happen with this process, mindfulness and wisdom. The teachings do point to the link between feeling and craving as a very central place for mindfulness to support kind of allowing this chain to fall apart. That if we can bring curiosity and interest to feeling tone. Because that's the link where feeling leads to craving. Craving in the second noble truth is is understood to really be the, the the, the actual, uh, the, the translation is often craving is the cause for suffering. But the, the Pali term actually makes it more translatable as something like with the, with the arising of craving is the arising of suffering that the arising of craving is already suffering. And so if the um, understanding of feeling can bring in some wisdom that helps to break through the ignorance around wanting and aversion, that is our habitual response to craving, if we can simply recognize as the Satipatthana Sutta says, when feeling a pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one understands, I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. Simple contact with feeling and understanding. This is what's arising. This kind of of, um, meeting of that experience, essentially, again, recognizing, oh, this is a human experience. We talked about this really early in the retreat, in, in, in the beginning of the March retreat. We talked about recognizing experience as human experience and not, not necessarily something to do something about, but just, oh, this is what's arising. When that can happen with feeling it tends to not lead to craving. When feeling is felt as feeling, 
and craving does not arise, clinging does not arise, becoming does not arise, birth into identity does not arise, and suffering does not arise. This place of feeling is one of the places where the difference between the, the enlightened person, the arhant, and the ordinary person is described. That text I mentioned earlier, what is the difference? Someone who's awakened experiences pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Someone who is ordinary experiences pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What's the difference between them? It says that the Buddha responded, when an ordinary person experiences a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve, lament, beat their breast, weep, and become distraught. They thus experience two kinds of feeling, a bodily one and a mental one. But the noble disciple, when touched by a painful feeling, will not worry nor grieve nor lament, will not beat their breast and weep, nor will they be distraught. It is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily one, not a mental one. We could say, a noble one, when touched by a painful bodily feeling, knows they're experiencing a painful bodily feeling. This kind of contact there, the recognition, the meeting of feeling, can short-circuit that movement to craving leading to that release. The sense of the recognition of the non-arising of suffering. And even seeing feeling at times, at least in my experience, sometimes I would go, yep, that's unpleasant. Oh, I still don't want it. Still want to get rid of it. And so sometimes we can, we can know that things are unpleasant, but still kind of want to push it away. The momentum of the ignorance behind aversion and wanting can be stronger than our ability to meet that pleasant or unpleasant feeling. And yet that's, there's not hopeless for us because there's another, um, one of my most heart connected teachings in the sutta is where the Buddha says, points to in one teaching, actually it's not the Buddha's teaching, it's Shariputra's teaching. Um, It points to for every single link in this chain of dependent origination, it says one can see that. One can understand, for instance, it says one can understand if one in seeing the arising of clinging One knows that clinging is there. One recognizes it's arising. One sees the possibility of it ceasing. One understands how one practices to see it ceasing. Right there, there can be freedom. Every single link in this chain, no matter where you are in this process, whatever is arising, this uh, teaching, uh, I'll point, it's, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, it's called the Teaching on Right View, Majjhima 9. Every single link of the chain is pointing to, pointed to as being a doorway to freedom. 
It doesn't matter if we're experiencing hatred or, or self, uh, self-hatred or rage or confusion or irritation or, as we've been saying, it doesn't matter with mindfulness and wisdom meeting anything, meeting whatever is arising, right there is the possibility for freedom. We don't have to somehow back up and find where the contact and and unpleasant feeling was or where the contact and pleasant feeling was that made me want this. Right here, if there's already wanting, we can see through the wanting. As in my description of, of seeing the wanting just release, the feeling of release there, that was a kind of freedom. And so seeing, understanding this process at work is helpful. Understanding how the process works. And anywhere we notice, anything we are noticing, wherever we're noticing in that cycle, freedom is possible. Our work is recognizing it as an arising. Clinging is arising. Sense of self is arising. Self-hatred is arising. Fear, confusion is arising. Freedom is possible in a moment. And patience. Patience (laughs) is necessary. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.